All right, I want to encourage you to grab uh, your Bible and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This morning, I think that this section of Scripture um, is really important to us as a family. As I was reading through it over the past couple of weeks, it is one of these sections of scriptures that is uh, hard to read and at the same time absolutely critical that we read and understand, that we grapple with this. And as a new church, we're, we're five years into this. We're going to be starting our sixth year in March, but we're still a, a pretty new church. We're still by you know most church standards, we're a baby. And we're still trying to figure out this. this. How do we live faithfully as Christ calls us to live faithfully? And so I, I want those of you who are parents or have ever been around children, which is hopefully all of you, to think about how much, how much time does a baby require? Moms? A lot, right? It requires a lot of attention. And the baby requires more than just mom and dad feeding, more than just mom and dad hugging and squeezing the child. It requires a whole plethora of stuff. And in the same way, the church, our church, requires more than just solid Bible teaching. It requires us not to just be these orthodox people who make sure that the The church gets solid food. And this morning, as as we struggle with this, you're going to hear what Jesus has to say to the church in Ephesus. And I want you to hear, before we even get there, that the most important thing about your your Christian walk is not the name of our church, it's not the, the denomination or lack of denomination that we're a part of, That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not where we meet, whether we have a building that we own of our own or that we are in a a school building. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing isn't that we have a rockin' kids ministry back there or that we have uh, struggling with you know, having an amazing youth ministry someday. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing isn't that we have a band that just, man, just... Your hair is blown back or off because it's just absolutely amazing and they are just the most skilled musicians in the world. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not that you have a pastor who is able to teach skillfully. It's not The most important thing is not that we have this person in leadership or that person in leadership. That is not the most important thing. Don't get me wrong. These, those things that I've listed are not unimportant. In fact, they're crucial, critical for the purity of the church and the mission of the church. But that is not the most important thing. The most important thing for us as individuals and as a church is to have a living, dynamic, vital love for Jesus Christ. A vital, living, dynamic love for Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. And I constantly live in this tension as a pastor. That I fear that I give you a lot more activities and things to do that ultimately distract you from having a living, dynamic relationship, love for Jesus. And for us as a church, it is crucial that we keep the main thing, the main thing. A scribe once came to Jesus after having a discussion with his cronies. Because in Jesus' time and even before that, the rabbis, the teachers would be struggling struggling with what is the most weighty 
of all the commandments. They knew that the, all the commandments that came from Moses were important because they understood the authority of Scripture. But which of the commandments was the most weighty? And which were less weighty? What, what are the ones that they would wrestle back and forth? Which one should we make sure that, that we keep? And so a scribe came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, tell us, what is the most important commandment? What is absolutely the most important? And for me, and for us today, wouldn't you just like to hear Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh, walking amongst us, say, well, let me boil it down for you. This is the entire Scripture. These, this is the most important. And Jesus, the, the Greek word there is protos. Priority. Protos. This is the protos, the most important thing. This is the commandment that you need to, need to live by. And what does he say? He boils it down to this. And you see this in Mark chapter 12. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. How do you do it? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The Jewish people knew. They, whenever they stood up, whenever they laid down, whenever they walked along the way, they would repeat this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with heart, your soul, your mind, with all your strength. But Jesus craftily connected Leviticus chapter 18 and said, ah, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Where your heart is, determines so much of how we we live our life, our Christian life. That's why looking at Fifth Sundays, that we're canceling worship for the sake of worshiping God through our hands, where our heart is determines how we live, isn't it? J.C. Ryle talks about this. He says, How striking is our Lord's description of the feeling with which we ought to regard both God and our neighbor." We are not merely to obey the one or to abstain abstain from injuring the other. In both cases, we are to give far more than this. We are to give love. The strongest of all affections and the most comprehensive. The rule like a rule like this includes everything. It makes all petty details unnecessary. Nothing will be intentionally lacking where there is love. Your whole life is bound up in your heart. Your whole life is bound up and everything overflows from your heart. What you love, where your affections lie, is out of that overflow, you can see what a person loves. If I have a deep, deep love for Jesus Christ, man, that is going to flow into how I look at my finances, how I look at my kids, how I look at the world all around me. It looks, it affects how I love the unlovable, the, the dirty, the downcast, the people that I don't agree with politically. It, it informs everything. Look at, if you have a deep, deep, deep love for your family, I can tell. And the world around you can tell. Because you almost do what? You elevate them, you put them up on the pillar, and you will do anything for your family, won't you? And if anything comes in between you and your family, anybody hurts your children or your family, there is hell to pay. If you love your job, 
Oh man, and I will do anything to get to the top of the pyramid. I will climb the ladder and I'll climb over people as I get up there. People can tell that you have such a love for your job because what? It informs your schedule. It informs your family time. It informs how you view the world. It will even inform how you use the resources that God gives you. But when we talk about this, Jesus says, listen, the greatest commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not some. All. That informs then how we should live. Look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 says this, A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And an evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I dare say, out of the abundance of your heart, your activity comes. The way that you think, the way that you live, the way that you speak, the way that you interact with people, out of the abundance of your heart, your love for God, your love for Jesus Christ, your understanding of the gospel, out of this overflow, this abundance of your heart, that's what comes out. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the spring of life. Springs of life. What you say with your mouth is just the overflow of your heart. What you do with your life is just the overflow of your heart. So how to control your mouth? is a matter of controlling your heart. To control your pocketbook is just a matter of controlling your heart. To control your ministry, to control the work of the church, it's an issue of controlling our heart. So in many ways, I think that we can relate to the church in Ephesus. Let's look at Ephesus chapter, or Ephesus chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who is it that's holding the the seven stars? Who? Who? A little bit louder. Jesus Christ is holding the seven stars. A couple weeks ago, let's test your memory. Who are the seven stars? Oh, no. The angels who are the seven pastors. So Jesus is holding, controlling the seven pastors. He is in control of what goes on. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who are the seven golden lampstands? The seven churches. There we go. We got it. You're passing. You're at least 50% now. I know your works your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them false. I know you are patiently, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The church of Ephesus may have been the strongest church in their time. It was founded when the gospel was brought to them by Priscilla and Aquila, as we see in Acts chapter 18. Their founding pastor was probably Apollos, who was one of the most gifted preachers. Even Paul says, what about Apollos? What about Peter? What about, what about me? Who, who do we follow? I follow after Christ. Apollos was named, and he was known in the early church as just being this very gifted preacher. On top of that, After Apollos, Paul came. Paul came to Ephesus twice. The first time it was just for a really short stay. He came in and later on, Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than any other church. 
in his career as a missionary. He stayed in Ephesus for three years. And for Paul, that would have been an eternity. He stayed for three years. He taught them theology. He taught them sound doctrine. He rooted them in the foundation which was given to them through the the prophets from Moses. He, He rooted them. Sound doctrine. No church had been taught to the extent as the church in Ephesus. After that, Paul met with the elders in Miletus, and if you see in uh, Acts chapter 18, for an extended amount of time for, before he goes on to Rome, where he will ultimately meet his demise. He teaches the elders. He weeps with them, implores them and says, listen, keep your eyes open. Keep your hearts awake because there are going to be people coming into your church who are like wolves, and they will devour the flock. So he's saying, listen, I've taught you, I've discipled you, I've grounded you in the Word. Be firm, because there's people coming in from the outside. On top of that, Timothy also pastored in Ephesus. After that came Onesimus, Tychicus. And how about this? Historians believe that the Apostle John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John made Ephesus his headquarters for his ministry. It's believed by some that John 1, John 2, and John 3 were all written probably in Ephesus. So the senior statesman for all of Christianity was in Ephesus. The last living apostle based out of Ephesus was probably arrested and taken from Ephesus to Patmos where he wrote Revelation. Tradition says also that as soon as his time on Patmos was done, when he was released, he went back to Ephesus. It was an extraordinary church. Extraordinary church. It was also an extraordinary town. It was the capital of Asia. Under Caesar and the the Roman Empire, it became the capital. It was the hub of commerce. It was almost a half a million people strong. It was a port town. So there's all kinds of commerce that was coming in. So it was a wealthy town. And so more than likely, this church in Ephesus was a growing, thriving, multicultural church. It was not our vanilla village. It was every tribe, every nation, every tongue coming together in one place. People from all kinds of socioeconomic status were coming together in this church. It was also a tremendously pagan city. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana, was there. But this was a place that God planted a church. It had many things going for it. It was a strong church. If we would have to put our checklist together, We'd say, oh my gracious, they are, they're, for some of this, us, it's important. They were a conservative church. For some of us, we'd say they were probably a reformed church. Maybe not of the reformed church in America persuasion, but they were reformed nonetheless. They were biblical people. They were this kind of people. They were this kind of, man, they got everything in the positive end. This is an amazing church. It's multicultural. Look at these people. They're giving. Look at these. Have you seen their list of pastors? Paul was here. John was here. This is an amazing church. I'd love to come to this church. But I want to keep on moving. I want us to walk through. And I want you to hear some of these things. Because I believe they're true for us. You look at... Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, listen. I know your works. I know your deeds. 
And who is saying this? It's Jesus. It, this is Jesus who's walking amongst the church. He's watching every detail. He goes, I know your deeds. I see what you do. I'm watching you. Maybe not, you know, all of us think, okay, he's watching us here this morning. He's in our midst. But he's also with us as we are scattered. He's in our midst. But he's also assessing. Like a, like a teacher. I know your deeds. I know you're involved. You're, you're action-oriented. You are a church of doers. You don't, you're not just a church of, of sitters, of people who sit back and do nothing. You are doers. I know your deeds. Look at them all. These are all things that, that you do. This is absolutely amazing. You're a vibrant, doing church. I know your, your toil. I know your, your hard work. The word here is kapas. The Greek word is kapas. And it means to work to the point of exhaustion. This church was one that just can't do anymore. When they serve God, they are literally serving to the point of exhaustion. They are just working their tails off. Go, 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 do, do, do. And if you'd show up in one of their, their gathered worship opportunities, you, would, you might even hear somebody say, you know what? You're going to have to fill in for me today. You're going to have to fill in for me today because I literally don't have anything more I can give. I, I've been toiling, toiling. I know your perseverance. The Greek word is hupomone. It means to bear up underneath the difficulty. They knew what it meant to overcome obstacles to serve God. No matter. They, they, they weren't quitters. They weren't the type who would just serve in an easy place or a soft place. They were people who were committed to do whatever task was put before them and they would do a turnkey job it is absolutely complete if you've seen a turnkey house you walk in and go i don't need to do anything else they were the people who were working hard persevering under pressure being able to bear up underneath all this pressure and they were working hard toiling 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 they were doing amazing work on top of that he says that, you know, you're the type who cannot bear evil persons. They were strict and, dare I say, ultra-conservative. They were tough. This was no country club. It wasn't the kind of community where you could, you could just come in and hide in the woodworks and live like the devil during, during the week and then show up on Sunday all brushed up and looking clean and pretty. There was accountability within that church. And some people believe that this refers to that there was even really good, healthy church discipline going on. Saying they cannot bear, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they cannot bear with any kind of evil person. It's just foreign to them. There was a high moral and theological standard in the church. They even got to the point where they tested, tested those who called themselves apostles. There were itinerant preachers who were coming around to the churches wanting to pray, you know, preach on a Sunday morning, spend some time, maybe a month at, at length, teaching in the church. And their elders, they heard Paul and Miletus and said, no, there's going to be people coming in. They're going to be like wolves. They're going to tear apart your church. And so they were testing and approving all these people. And if somebody, if they got the slightest hint that these people smelt of false apostles, they were telling another gospel, they'd give them an apple and pat them on their butt and say, go on your way. You ain't preaching here. We don't need your type here. That's a prosperity gospel. That's a this kind of gospel. We don't need that here. You, you move along. You are a false apostle. Move. They were not even given pulpit time. They were commended for being tough. Jesus says, listen, I, I got these things 
that are in the positive column. All these things are good things. Even your Sunday school teachers went through a rigorous training class. There's no excuses for anybody. These are good, solid, theologically sound people. Doctrine mattered in Ephesus. Doctrine mattered in Ephesus. And he even said, listen, I know that you are patient, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary. So he's saying, listen, all this work that you are doing, it's not for your sake. It's not so that you're noticed in a community. It's not so that you get a really big church with a really big congregation, with a really big band, with a really big offering, with a really big this, with a really big that, and you're noticed in the community because you're really good. He's saying, no, you're bearing up, you're enduring patiently for why? My name's sake. You are doing it for the right reasons. This is an absolutely incredible church by North American standards. But there's a a but in verse 4. And sometimes that word but comes at an absolutely perfect time. Like in, in Ephesians 2. They may have remembered Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, when Paul said this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. But God in His mercy, He's done this for us. They were probably reading this with bated breath in, in Ephesus going, okay, tell me about it. Oh wait, now Jesus says, but, and they're waiting. Yeah, but, but, come on. Tell me, but, but this I have against you. This I have against you. And these are the scary words that haunt me. This is Jesus, the head of the church, who's walking amongst us. And he says this to a group of believers. I have something to you, and it's a big deal. I have something against you. And it's so serious that at the end of verse 5, he says that either you deal with it, either you deal with this thing, or what's going to happen? I'm going to take your lampstand from you. You deal with this. My spirit no longer resides within this community of believers. He says in plain language, I'm, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. I'm just going to shut you down. You may have the key to your building. You may be paying rent to a public school for this space. But you know what? Ultimately, you can keep on carrying on all these activities. You can do all these good things. You can be theologically sound. But at the end of the day, I won't be there. And my spirit won't be there. And you're going to be just going through motions. And what is so serious that Jesus threatens the church by saying that I'm going to remove your lampstand? It's vital for us to understand. Verse 4 says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Your first love. This first love speaks of honeymoon love. Renee and Astor are going to be celebrating 45 years 
as a married couple. And you've got to keep the, what was it with honeymoon? You've got to keep the honey in the moon. This first love is that first love, that honeymoon love, that romantic love, the love that speaks of the passion and excitement and enthusiasm of a love relationship. The first love speaks here speaks of a person who has first come to faith in Jesus Christ and every day there is absolutely new excitement for their love for Christ. And I want you to go back down your memory lane just for a little bit and I want you to remember the moment that all of a sudden it becomes absolutely real. It's technicolor. There's lights. There's Jesus has done this for me. Your heart is just burning within you. Just going, I cannot believe that He has done this for me. And because of this deep love that He has for me and my love for Him, I cannot wait to get into His Word. I want to... His words are here. I can discover more of Jesus Christ here. I will get into this word and I'm just hungry for it. What? There's other Christians and they're called my brothers and sisters. I want to get to know this family and I cannot wait to get together. Whether it be in a small group setting, whether it be one-on-one discipleship, whether it be in a corporate gathering, I cannot wait. In fact, I'm going to be like these guys and I'm going to sit in the front row in the spit zone because I'm so hungry. Sorry. First visit, I know. You cannot wait and you have your notebook and you are just going, tell me more. Tell me more. That's Jesus. He says, okay, it's in here. It's got to be true. And you're the type when, when the, the band is singing, even if they are the most off-key group in the world, not that that was this morning, but when they start playing, you are in the Spirit and you are worshiping God and you love Him. You just... you. You don't care if you can or cannot stay on, on key. You sing it out for the whole world and Jesus to hear. You sing and you sing loudly. When there's opportunities to serve, you say, sign me up. I'm terrible with kids, but I just want to serve Jesus. I can change a diaper. Maybe not well, but I will do it all for the glory of God. Give me an opportunity to serve and love and be a part of that. That is the first love. Your love for the gospel, what Jesus has done. But God, who is rich in mercy, who has loved you with that kind of love, while you were dead in your sins, He rescued from the pit of hell. And He says, you are mine. I've chosen you from the creation of the world, before the creation of the world, and you have my name written all over you. And I want you. And you go, yes. And I will do whatever. That is the love that the church in Ephesus had lost. Somewhere along the way, there was a leak in their spiritual tire. There was a leak. And it didn't just happen overnight. It was a slow leak. The engine probably was purring. It was smooth. The oil was changed. All the belts and... Radiator cap was tight, and I don't know anything about cars, but it was running smooth. But they get out there in the morning, and all of a sudden they go, a tire. It's flat. When did that happen? How did that happen? And it was this slow leak over time. And the same is true with us, isn't it? Where all of a sudden you wake and go, where has my love for Christ gone. I loved Him so much. What has happened to my life? I, I know Scripture. I can, I can quote you stuff. I know John Piper by name. I've got his email, his cell phone. Oh, we, uh, we are tight. We are the most theologically conservative. But our deep love for Jesus is gone. Somewhere along the way, they got caught up in church work. And there's a difference between the work of the church and church work. God calls us to be a part of His work. And that's the work of the church. 
But as soon as it starts becoming, oh, it's the first Sunday of the month, that means I've got to be back there. It's the fifth Sunday of the month, that means we're canceling church so that we can go serve poor people. And it's becoming our duty. We have lost our love for Christ. They were toiling, persevering. They were not tolerating. They were putting to test and persevering some more. And all these things were great, but it wasn't the main thing. The baseball analogy. Man, you, you can hit the ball absolutely solid. Pop it. And you start running for that first base. But if you miss the first base and go to second and touch second, and touch third, and you're coming in, and the ball is still way out there, and you touch home base, you are still out. You're still out. It doesn't matter how fast and how well you ran the bases. If you miss the first thing, the most important thing, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and Love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? Huh. Man, let's look at that some Sunday. Who is your neighbor? If you miss the most important thing, nothing else seems to matter. And Jesus here is not saying, listen, I want you to give up good theology. Just love. Just love people. He's not saying that. It is 100% love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and also, 100%, I want you to be working hard. I want you to toil and persevere when there's all kinds of pressure. I want you to push up underneath it and keep on going. I want you to test and discern people who come in. I want you to be smart. I want you to know your scriptures. But you also have got to be marked with love. You have got to be marked with love. And there's part of me that is concerned. There's part of me concerned that as we're getting close to our starting our sixth year, that maybe some of the honeymoon love is gone. The honey is no longer in the moon. Some of the glow is gone. It has absolutely nothing to do with what we're doing for second base, third base, or home run. It has everything to do with your heart for Jesus Christ. It becomes, gets really easy be able to say, well, you know the, what the problem is with, with our church? The problem with our church is that we're really not conservative enough. Or we don't sing the right songs. Or, you know, the problem is, the real problem is, people aren't giving. That's the problem. You know what the problem is? People really aren't inviting their neighbors. You know, you know what the problem is? We don't have a great evangelism program. You know what the problem is? We don't have uh, more than one elder. You know what the problem is? The problem is... No. That's not the problem. That's not the problem at all. Jesus is talking to us. The problem is, you've lost your love. So how do we rekindle this glow? This Thanks be to God, He gave us verse 5. He says, I want you to remember, therefore. I want you to remember. Remember that honeymoon? Remember when you you, Honey, just tell me what to do. I'll do it. Because I love you. I'm enamored with you. I will, as a husband, I will love my wife as Christ loved the church. I will give that to Honey, just tell me. I love you so much. Remember some of you who are on the launch team way back in the day. The love that we had 
for the idea of this new church, coupled along with Jesus and what he's done in us, uh, just our passion for, man, we've got to do this. We've got to get out in the community. We've got to make this happen. We've got to do this. We'll throw a Super Bowl party with jumpies. We'll do whatever it takes. Good job, Dave, by the way. We'll do whatever it takes. Dave hates football. He threw a Super Bowl party. That says something about his love for Christ. Or just stupidity. I don't know. But there is something about where we once were, where we, oh, this, I have this passion for Christ, and I will do whatever it takes to make His name known. Remember that. And the next thing he says is to do what? Anyone? He says to repent. The word is in the Greek, metanoia, which means to go the other direction. One of the few Greek words that almost everybody, if you've been here long enough, knows. Metanoia, repent. We're going this direction. Now we're going the other. I repent, Jesus. I'm going back to you. But then he says, I want you to not just come back to me. I want you to come back to me doing the things that you did at first. I want you to remember that sweet, sweet love relation. It was vibrant. It was rich. It was vital. It was exciting. It was passionate. It made you do things you didn't think you would ever do. Remember that relationship. Remember that. Assess where you are now. Go the other direction. And do those things that you used to do. Do those things that you used to do. One of the purposes... we're. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper. Don't shut your Bibles yet, because I know that's the first, it's like the closing arguments. One of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to examine where your walk is. As we come here, we remember. We remember what Jesus Christ has done for us, what He is doing in us now, and what He will continue to do in us. We have got to remember, but we also have got to repent. We need to confess our sins, knowing that He is faithful and just to remove us, remove from us all unrighteousness. It's easy to get caught up in activities. It's easy to do all these things. And these things are great. And Jesus even commended the church, and He commends us for doing them. I want you to do these things. It would be very easy for us to neglect what is the most important thing in our life. And that's a vital, personal, intimate, dynamic walk with Jesus. So we come to the Lord's Supper. Hearing Him say in verse 7, He who has an ear, you have two. He who has an ear. All right, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This morning, I think that this section of Scripture um, is really important to us as a family. As I was reading through it over the past couple of weeks, it is one of these sections of scriptures that is hard to read and at the same time absolutely critical that we read and understand, that we grapple with this. And as a new church, we're, we're five years into this. We're going to be starting our sixth year in March, but we're still a, a pretty new church. We're still by you know most church standards, we're a baby. And we're still trying to figure out this. this, How do we live faithfully as Christ calls us to live faithfully? And so I I want those of you who are parents or have ever been around children, which is hopefully all of you, to think about how how much time does a baby require? 
Moms, a lot, right? It requires a lot of attention. And the baby requires more than just mom and dad feeding, more than just mom and dad hugging and squeezing the child. It requires a whole plethora of stuff. And in the same way, the church, our church, requires more than just solid Bible teaching. It requires us not to just be these orthodox people who make sure that the the church gets solid food. And this morning, as, as we struggle with this, you're going to hear what Jesus has to say to the church in Ephesus. And I want you to hear, before we even get there, that the most important thing about your, your Christian walk is not the name of our church, it's not the, the denomination or lack of denomination that we're a part of, That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not where we meet, whether we have a building that we own of our own or that we are in a a school building. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing isn't that we have a rocking kids ministry back there or that we have uh, struggling with you know, having an amazing youth ministry someday. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing isn't that we have a band that just, man, just... Your hair is blown back or off because it's just absolutely amazing and they are just the most skilled musicians in the world. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not that you have a pastor who is able to teach skillfully. It's not The most important thing is not that we have this person in leadership or that person in leadership. That is not the most important thing. Don't get me wrong. These, those things that I've listed are not unimportant. In fact, they're crucial, critical for the purity of the church and the mission of the church. But that is not the most important thing. The most important thing for us as individuals and as a church is to have a living, dynamic, vital love for Jesus Christ. A vital, living, dynamic love for Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing. And I constantly live in this tension as a pastor. That I fear that I give you a lot more activities and things to do that ultimately distract you from having a living, dynamic relationship, love for Jesus. And for us as a church, it is crucial that we keep the main thing, the main thing. A scribe once came to Jesus after having a discussion with his crony. Because in Jesus' time and even before that, the rabbis, the teachers would be struggling, struggling with what is the most weighty of all the commandments. They knew that the, all the commandments that came from Moses were important because they understood the authority of Scripture. But which of the commandments was the most weighty? And which were less weighty? What, what are the ones that they would wrestle back and forth? Which one should we make sure that, that we keep? And so a scribe came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, tell us. What is the most important commandment? What is absolutely the most important? And for me, and for us today, wouldn't you just like to hear Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh, walking amongst us, say, well, let me boil it down for you. This is the entire scripture. These, this is the most important. And Jesus, the, the Greek word there is protos. Priority. Protos. This is the protos, the most important thing. This is the commandment that you need to, need to live by. And what does he say? He boils it down to this. And you see this in Mark chapter 12. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God. How do you do it? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The Jewish people knew. Whenever they stood up, whenever they laid down, whenever they walked along the way, they would repeat this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, with all your strength. But Jesus craftily connected Leviticus chapter 18 and said, Ah, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Where your heart is determines so much of how we we live our life, our Christian life. That's why looking at Fifth Sundays, that we're canceling worship for the sake of worshiping God through our hands, where our heart is determines how we live, isn't it? J.C. Ryle talks about this. He says, How striking is our Lord's description of the feeling with which we ought to regard both God and our neighbor. We are not merely to obey the one or to abstain, abstain from injuring the other. In both cases, we are to give far more than this. We are to give love. The strongest of all affections and the most comprehensive the rule like a rule like this includes everything it makes all petty details unnecessary nothing will be intentionally lacking where there is love your whole life is bound up in your heart your whole life is bound up and everything overflows from your heart where you, where you, what you love, where your affections lie, is out of that overflow, you can see what a person loves. If I have a deep, deep love for Jesus Christ, man, that is going to flow into how I look at my finances, how I look at my kids, how I look at the world all around me. It looks, it affects how I love the unlovable. The, the dirty, the downcast, the people that I don't agree with politically, it, it informs everything. Look at, if you have a deep, deep, deep love for your family, I can tell. And the world around you can tell. Because you almost do what? You elevate them, you put them up on the pillar, and you will do anything for your family, won't you? And if anything comes in between you and your family, anybody hurts your children or your family, there is hell to pay. If you love your job, oh man, and I will do anything to get... To the top of the pyramid. I will climb the ladder and I'll climb over people as I get up there. People can tell that you have such a love for your job because what? It informs your schedule. It informs your family time. It informs how you view the world. It will even inform how you use the resources that God gives you. But when we talk about this, Jesus says... Listen, the greatest commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not some. All. That informs, then, how we should live. Look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 says this, A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And an evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I dare say, out of the abundance of your heart, 
your activity comes. The way that you think, the way that you live, the way that you speak, the way that you interact with people, out of the abundance of your heart, your love for God, your love for Jesus Christ, your understanding of the gospel, out of this overflow, this abundance of your heart, that's what comes out. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the spring of life. Springs of life. What you say with your mouth is just the overflow of your heart. What you do with your life is just the overflow of your heart. So how to control your mouth? is a matter of controlling your heart. To control your pocketbook is just a matter of controlling your heart. To control your ministry, to control the work of the church, it's an issue of controlling our heart. So in many ways, I think that we can relate to the church in Ephesus. Let's look at Ephesus chapter, or Ephesus chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who is it that's holding the the seven stars? Who? Who? A little bit louder. Jesus Christ is holding the seven stars. A couple weeks ago, let's test your memory. Who are the seven stars? Oh, no. The angels who are the seven pastors. So Jesus is holding, controlling the seven pastors. He is in control of what goes on. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who are the seven golden lampstands? The seven churches. There we go. We got it. You're passing. You're at least 50% now. I know your works your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them false. I know you are patiently, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The church of Ephesus may have been the strongest church in their time. It was founded when the gospel was brought to them by Priscilla and Aquila, as we see in Acts chapter 18. Their founding pastor was probably Apollos, who was one of the most gifted preachers. Even Paul says, what about Apollos? What about Peter? What about, what about me? Who, who do we follow? I follow after Christ. Apollos was named, and he was known in the early church as just being this very gifted preacher. On top of that, After Apollos, Paul came. Paul came to Ephesus twice. The first time it was just for a really short stay. He came in and later on, Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than any other church in his career as a missionary. He stayed in Ephesus for three years. And for Paul, that would have been an eternity. He stayed for three years. He taught them theology. He taught them sound doctrine. He rooted them in the foundation which was given to them through the the prophets from Moses. He, He rooted them. Sound doctrine. No church had been taught to the extent as the church in Ephesus. After that, Paul met with the elders in Miletus, and if you see in uh, Acts chapter 18, for an extended amount of time for, before he goes on to Rome, where he will ultimately meet his demise. He teaches the elders. He weeps with them. Implores them and says, listen, keep your eyes open. Keep your hearts awake because there are going to be people coming into your church who are like wolves and they will devour the flock. So he's saying, listen, I've taught you, I've discipled you, I've grounded you in the Word. Be firm, because there's people coming in from the outside. On top of that, Timothy 
also pastored in Ephesus. After that came Onesimus, Tychicus. And how about this? Historians believe that the Apostle John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John made Ephesus his headquarters for his ministry. It's believed by some that John 1, John 2, and John 3 were all written probably in Ephesus. So the senior statesman for all of Christianity was in Ephesus. The last living apostle based out of Ephesus was probably arrested and taken from Ephesus to Patmos where he wrote Revelation. Tradition says also that as soon as his time on Patmos was done, when he was released, he went back to Ephesus. It was an extraordinary church. Extraordinary church. It was also an extraordinary town. It was the capital of Asia. Under Caesar and the the Roman Empire, it became the capital. It was the hub of commerce. It was almost a half a million people strong. It was a port town. So there's all kinds of commerce that was coming in. So it was a wealthy town. And so more than likely, this church in Ephesus was a growing, thriving, multicultural church. It was not our vanilla village. It was every tribe, every nation, every tongue coming together in one place. People from all kinds of socioeconomic status were coming together in this church. It was also a tremendously pagan city. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana, was there. But this was a place that God planted a church. It had many things going for it. It was a strong church. If we would have to put our checklist together, we'd say, oh my gracious, they are, for some of us, it's important, they are a conservative church. For some of us, we'd say, they were probably a reformed church. Maybe not of the Reformed Church in America persuasion, but they were Reformed nonetheless. They were biblical people. They were this kind of people. They were this kind of... Man, they got everything in the positive end. This is an amazing church. It's multicultural. Look at these people. They're giving. Look at these. Have you seen their list of pastors? Paul was here. John was here. This is an amazing church. I'd love to come to this church. But I want to keep on moving. I want us to walk through. And I want you to hear some of these things. Because I believe they're true for us. You look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, listen. I know your works. I know your deeds. And who is saying this? It's Jesus. It, this is Jesus who's walking amongst the church. He's watching every detail. He goes, I know your deeds. I see what you do. I'm watching you. Maybe not, you know, all of us think, okay, he's watching us here this morning. He's in our midst. But he's also with us as we are scattered. He's in our midst. But he's also assessing. Like a like a teacher. I know your deeds. I know you're involved. You're, you're action-oriented. You are a church of doers. You don't, you're not just a church of, of sitters, of people who sit back and do nothing. You are doers. I know your deeds. Look at them all. These are all things that, that you do. This is absolutely amazing. You're a vibrant, doing church. I know your, your toil. I know your, your hard work. The word here is kapas. The Greek word is kapas. And it means to work to the point of exhaustion. This church was one that just can't do anymore. 
When they serve God, they are literally serving to the point of exhaustion. They are just working their tails off. Go, 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 do, do, do. And if you'd show up in one of their, their gathered worship opportunities, you, would, you might even hear somebody say, you know what? You're going to have to fill in for me today. You're going to have to fill in for me today because I literally don't have anything more I can give. I, I've been toiling, toiling. I know your perseverance. The Greek word is hupomone. means to bear up underneath the difficulty. They knew what it meant to overcome obstacles to serve God, no matter. They, they, they weren't quitters. They weren't the type who would just serve in an easy place or a soft place. They were people who were committed to do whatever task was put before them and they would do a turnkey job it is absolutely complete if you've seen a turnkey house you walk in and go i don't need to do anything else they were the people who were working hard persevering under pressure being able to bear up underneath all this pressure and they were working hard toiling 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 they were doing amazing work on top of that He says that, you know, you're the type who cannot bear evil persons. They were strict and, dare I say, ultra-conservative. They were 